From KUOW in Seattle, welcome to Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman. And today we're devoting the show to discussing a topic that lands at the crossroads of physical health, societal pressures, mental wellness, body politics, even judgment and shame. I'm talking about fatness and the future of fat in the age of Ozempic. The medication and its competitors were first developed to treat diabetes and obesity, but they're now widely being used off-label as weight loss aids. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me? <laughs> These drugs are upending society's understanding about willpower and body size. Even Oprah Winfrey, arguably the most visible and powerful dieter of the last century, has embraced a pharmaceutical approach to her own weight management. She used words like relief, redemption, and gift to describe the class of drugs known as GLP-1 agonists, which includes Ozempic. Now, these medications come with side effects. There are serious supply and pricing obstacles to acquiring the drugs for diabetes patients who need them. And some fear their introduction has the potential to undermine body positivity and inclusivity work that has brought different sizes and shapes into mainstream pop culture. So to explore some of the questions swirling around Ozempic and similar medications, we've assembled a panel of experts. I'm joined by Madison Muller, a health reporter for Bloomberg, Tigris Osborne, the chair of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, and Dr. Ellen Schur, an obesity medicine doctor and researcher at University of Washington Medicine. Welcome to Soundside, everybody. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. So Dr. Schur, I want to start with you. You know, weight loss drugs are not new. I've been around long enough to know that every generation has their miracle cure. Sometimes it turns out to be snake oil. Uh, the 90s, I remember Fenfen, that diet drug combination that caused people to have heart damage in some cases. What is different about contemporary drugs like Ozempic, Wegovi, Manjaro? Why have they captured the attention of physicians, researchers, and the general public? Yeah, that's a great question and a great place to start. Um, first of all, uh, it's partly how efficacious they are. And I think it's because it's a new class of medicines that that act in a new way. So this uh, family of medicines act on a system of hormones that are released from the gut when we eat. And one of these hormones is called GLP-1, and it's uh, produced in the intestines when we eat travels through the bloodstream to the pancreas, and there it causes the pancreas to make more insulin. Um, this helps us move glucose and energy into our heart cells and brain and muscles uh, so we can use it for what our body has to do. Um, and also is why uh, the medicines that mimic the effect of these hormones are used for diabetes. So Ozempic uh, is uh, prescribed for diabetes and, and treats diabetes. The exact same um, medications and hormones in your body also are part of the signals to the brain that we've eaten. And the brain is what stimulates us to feel full. Um, and so these hormones mimic those effects as well. And that's part of the reason that we see weight loss when people take these medicines. And so the same medicine, something called semaglutide, its generic name, has a brand name Ozempic, which is used for diabetes, but then has another brand name and approval um, for weight uh, treatment. And uh, that's called Wagovi. Uh, so I think the reason these are in the headlines is because of how effective they are. 
Uh, and that is because they're treating sort of the underlying biology of appetite and body weight uh, as it's regulated in the brain. Tigris, you had a reaction to that. Um, what did you want to weigh in on? Yeah. Well, I really appreciate that sort of summary of how they all work. Um, but at, And to the question of why they've captured the attention of the public and also the attention of physicians, I do think it's really important for us to note the amount of money spent on the marketing of these drugs and the, the sort of concerted efforts of the pharmaceutical industry to cultivate a market for these drugs, to support you know, obesity research, to, you know, to fund obesity, you know, organizations that look at, you know, obesity and like, and, and to question that investment, uh, to question the motivations of that investment, where they are truly about the health of everyone in the world, and where they are motivated by profits. I think it's always important to add that question to the conversation when we're talking about why they're popular and why they're being covered so widely in the media. There's, you know, that is not all happenstance. There is some um, some very orchestrated campaigning around these things, in addition to the way that they've just um, sort of connected with what we already easily activated about regarding weight. Well, it's a product, right? And that's kind of the pharmaceutical business reality. Um, I want to get to effectiveness and to get a response from Dr. Schur in just a second. I do want to bring in Madison Muller with Bloomberg because uh, Tigris mentioned how big of a business this is. Can you just kind of run through what companies are in on this? How big of a deal is this in you know, the pharmaceutical business? And what are we seeing in terms of dollars and cents? Yeah. So, I mean, this market is projected to be one of the biggest of all time um, in the pharmaceutical industry. And so there are estimates that, you know, we're seeing it could be more than $100 billion by 2030. And right now there are two pharmaceutical companies that are really ahead of the rest and that are taking the majority of the market share right now. And that's Novo Nordisk. And they're a Danish company. And then there's Eli Lilly. And they're here in the U.S. They're in Indianapolis. And these two companies, Novo Nordisk makes Ozempic and Wagovi, and Eli Lilly makes Monjuro and Zepbound, which similar to Ozempic and Wagovi, one is for diabetes, one is for obesity. Um, and these are the two companies that are, you know, by and far in the lead right now. But we see Pfizer trying to get in on this. Obviously, they're looking for their next big thing after COVID and after the vaccine and antiviral, um, Amgen. There's a couple of smaller biotech companies that are trying to get into this market now, too. It's it's a sort of a classic story in pharma that when big pharma sees something working and sees other companies making money off of it, they're all trying to to get in on it. And a lot of experts think that there's room for multiple companies in this, because ultimately, if we have more products, it will make the products cheaper. There is room for maybe pills because the drugs right now are injections. Um, And so there's there's different still some room, I think, in different avenues for other companies to get in on this. And they definitely see that. Dr. Schur, I want to come back to you because uh, Tigris touched on a number of things here. One is that um, this is beyond just health at this point. Like companies see profit and there is a a vanity component to a drug that promises to make you thin. Um, How do you as a obesity doctor and somebody who specializes in this area of medicine navigate this new class of drugs 
when you're going to have patients that come in with a lot of preconceived notions, maybe patients coming in requesting them, um, and you do see a lot of societal pressures and economic pressures around these drugs. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, in in general, it's always going to be an individual decision um, based on a patient's preference, based on uh, their potential benefit of the medicines for their health. Uh, versus the risks. And so, you know, when I'm coming to you talking about these medicines, I'm coming from a very particular perspective as a physician, which is how we use them to help people's health. So thinness is not on my agenda. Um, Helping people maintain or improve their health is. The vast majority of patients that I sit down with have health problems related to their weight. Uh, and are looking to make improvements um, in their health. And so uh, it's actually frequently the opposite problem for me, which is that I'm sitting down with people who are choosing weight loss as a means of uh, trying to improve their health or a health condition. Um, And I can't get them access to the medicines because they're specifically excluded due to the fact that there is that it's an issue of obesity uh, that we're dealing with. So the vast majority of, of insurers uh, do not cover the medicines that are prescribed for obesity. They frequently do cover uh, for diabetes. Uh, so how do we navigate these? Um, it's challenging territory. It's a sensitive topic and a highly personal issue for people. And it's also um, you know, intersects with a lot of complexity around body weight, uh, a strong history of weight stigma and bias in the medical profession. And so these are difficult conversations. But for me, I'm bringing people the perspective that the science has tells us there's a biological problem here. uh, And we can work with efficacious agents on that biology and sort of maybe lift some of the guilt or shame that people bring to that conversation by really emphasizing that physiology of how um, the brain regulates appetite and fights weight loss. Um, So I think that's one of the ways that I work with it uh, for folks, um, but I can acknowledge that it's very complex. Before we move on, because we're going to talk about a lot of the social implications of this, the issues of fat stigma and um, the ways that Wagovi and Ozempic can um, interact with those uh, societal issues. Um, But doctor, when you talk about, you know, people who come in and are looking for a type of treatment that will help them uh, lose weight, what are you seeing in terms of the effectiveness of this drug? Like what what is the medical promise from your perspective of the drug or these, this class of drugs? Right. So when people uh, attempt or lose weight by lifestyle changes alone, they pretty typically lose between about five to 7% of their body weight. And that can modify some health conditions. Blood pressure can go down, glucose levels at the blood uh, can go down. Um, uh, But that frequently does not, uh, it's frequently not sustained. So weight regain is very common after that. Um, When we add medications, uh, there tends to be a larger amount of weight loss. So people are more likely to achieve something like 10 to 15% weight loss. And that can modify other types of health conditions like liver inflammation and joint issues. 
so there's a little bit larger weight loss with that. Um, and when people stay on the medicines, they're more likely to keep the weight off. And that's really because our body fights back against weight loss, regardless of the weight that people uh, start at uh, with the weight loss. Um, and the medicines help combat those 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 changes, uh, comp compensatory changes to weight loss. Tigris, what did you want to say? Well, I think it's important for folks to know that those of us who come at these questions from a fat liberation perspective uh, do generally have a lot of questions about the initial classification of obesity as a disease. And that that is something that like we want medical science to be troubling. We don't want to accept at face value everything that sort of the um, the the general public or lay people know about or think they know about fat or obesity as related to health. And certainly as a civil rights organization, we don't think the only thing to talk about about fat people and weight stigma is about medical weight stigma um, or about connections. Um, you know, Dr. Sherm used the, um, used the term related to, right? Health problems that are related to their weight. Um, we have a lot of questions about correlation versus causation and which health problems are in, you know, actually connected to fat and which are assumed to be connected to fat. Um, and I love hearing the approach of treating this as an individual patient issue. That's not how we treat it in the media at all. <laughs> and that's not how we treat it in society at all. So I love hearing about a physician who is treating it that way in their office. And, um, and we just like, that is one of the things that we advocate for. We advocate for weight neutral healthcare. If it's really related to your fat, let's find out if it really is, but let's not assume that in the beginning. There are ways to improve diabetes without weight loss. There are ways to improve heart situations without weight loss. And we wanna make sure that patients are getting informed consent. So part of our concern with these drugs in particular and with approaches to medical weight loss in general, is are patients really making informed consent? Are they getting the information they need? And then how much are they being coerced into decisions around weight loss by the culture in general or by other aspects of their medical experience? Things like being, um, things like BMI cutoffs for surgery that require weight loss or things like that. Like how much is it truly body autonomy to decide this is the best me and my healthcare practitioner are going to decide the best thing for me versus this whole bigger and more complicated web of things that are weighing on that decision and making it almost not really a decision at all almost a requirement and so those are some of the things that I think about when I think about um what's what is and isn't co covered by insurance like I want things to be covered by insurance so that people can really make their own choices at the same time the way things get covered by insurance often codifies some of these beliefs about obesity that some of us object to or at the very least question a lot that's Tigris Osborne, the chair of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. I'm also joined by Dr. Ellen Shore at UW Medicine and Bloomberg's Madison Muller. We're talking about Ozempic and similar drugs and questions surrounding their use and what the hype around them says about how our society views fatness. We'll be back with more on this discussion right after this short break. Stay with us on KUOW.
Welcome back to SoundSide. I'm Libby Dankman. On today's show, we're discussing Ozempic and its side effects on society. Today's panel is Dr. Ellen Shore, an obesity medicine doctor and researcher at University of Washington Medicine, and Tyrus Osborne, the chair of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. I'm also joined by Madison Muller, a health reporter at Bloomberg News. Madison, before our break, we were talking about the social implications of these drugs and the actual effectiveness on weight loss for patients. Talk to me about the business component here. How is the pharmaceutical and weight loss industry responding? Sort of the, you know, I guess excitement from a market perspective and some of the valuation that's being spurred about these drugs and these estimates of, you know, they're going to be worth $50 billion, $100 billion by 2030 is coming from this idea that everyone over a certain BMI is going to want to take these drugs, is going to need to take these drugs, is going to be on these drugs, you know, uh, price and insurance coverage willing, I guess, you know, as more and more as they become available, as access increases. And I think like this is something I've been thinking about a lot is we know that BMI is a pretty flawed measure of health. Um, That's like pretty well established, I think, at this point. But that is how we define obesity. And that is how people can qualify for these drugs. You know, if they're over a certain BMI, then they are diagnosed with obesity and then they're able to to get potentially with OV or ZepBound. And BMI doesn't really say a lot about health. So like from a business perspective, too, we're thinking about these estimates of how much these drugs could make for pharmaceutical companies. And the pharmaceutical companies are also really pushing the idea that obesity is a disease. There's been a lot of campaigns that both Eli Lilly and Nova Nordisk have been involved in, you know, they're saying it's to help destigmatize the disease of obesity. But, you know, sort of like as as Tigris was talking about, you know, there's this, I think there's some maybe harm in also labeling obesity as a disease. And that's just a conversation that needs to develop a little bit more, I think. And and we need to bring in other perspectives from patients from people with lived experience, um, because we are talking about it in this way of that I think is like sort of shifting the conversation towards everyone over a certain BMI or everyone with obesity has a disease and they're sick. And, you know, as Dr. Schur said, it's sort of a case by case individual basis. Patients and their doctors should be having this conversation and it should sort of depend on each person versus everyone over a certain BMI should be on these drugs, which I, you know, I don't know if anyone's saying that, but that is what some of the, at least like market expectation is. That's where it's coming from. Sure. If you're in Novo Nordisk, that sounds like a good uh, future for your, um, for your business. Um, Dr. Sure, before we move on, anything you want to add to that? No, I mean, I'll just echo some of the things that Tiger said that, you know, there, there are, there are, places uh, within medicine uh, where there still are uh, kind of weight or BMI related um, uh, criteria. So I sit down with patients who are trying to meet a BMI cutoff in order to be considered for a transplant, an organ transplant, a lung transplant, a heart transplant, or a kidney transplant. And um, the expectation is that, uh, you know, any person can sort of achieve uh, the weight loss that they're being asked to achieve uh, 
be, you know, by making lifestyle changes alone. And there's absolutely no data that shows us that, uh, particularly for people who have, an, you know, a, a heart that's not working or unable to, you know, increase their exercise or have other chronic conditions that limit some of those changes that they can make. Uh, and so when I'm in the situation of having a patient where they've been told, you know, a, a really a life-saving procedure um, is reliant on them losing weight. Uh, and uh, it both excites me to have a tool where I could maybe help them uh, to achieve that. Um, it's also troubling uh, that that's, you know, a requirement uh, for their life-saving uh, procedure. Uh, and uh, it's very frustrating when I can't access uh, those tools um, because, uh, because they're excluded from their insurance coverage. Uh, so I've raised that as kind of an, an extreme example of the ways in which these tools can be needed uh, to improve people's health. And um, because you know, I wanna advocate for my patients who are in those situations, um, and to, to just bring that perspective uh, to the conversation. When I first heard about Ozempic and about the, this class of drugs and what they could do, it felt both freeing on one sense because society was not going to be able to, it felt like from now on, tell people that you're fat because you're lazy or there is some correlation between those things. Um, it felt also like, what does this mean now going forward? Will there be this pressure to keep up with these ozempic thin people who we see on red carpets and in boardrooms? Tigris, what do you think about the social and emotional components of what these drugs are bringing up in everyone but women in particular? I think the social and emotional components are tremendously important for us to be considering, um, both in terms of the impact on people who take the drugs and the impact on people who, for whatever reasons, do not take the drugs because they cannot take them, because they cannot afford them, because they cannot access them, because they choose not to take them because these drugs do have side effects that affects pe affect people's lives and health that we are not talking about widely enough. And those of us who lived through things like Benfen, which you mentioned earlier, also may have some fears about long-term effects that haven't been discovered yet about these drugs. So I do know that this class of drugs has been better tested, for example, than um, the combination of Fenfen was at the time that, you know, we had that debacle in the 90s. And still, there's only so much testing you can do on a class of drugs that's only existed for a few years. So we don't know what the 5, 10, 15, 20 year effects are for people who have to take these for the rest of their lives to maintain the, the physical outcome uh, you know, of weight loss or weight suppression. Um, we don't know what weight cycling will look like with these drugs as people, as they do plateau on the drugs or as they go on and off the drugs for whatever reasons they have to or choose to. So that like all of that stuff does have these huge emotional and mental health impacts on the people who are taking them. And as you said, the people who feel pressured to take them in order to keep up with folks who 
are taking them or who are saying they're taking them. I mean, I when I think about how I first heard about Ozempic, I first heard about Ozempic from loved ones in my community and later in my own household who needed Ozempic for diabetic reasons and were not able to get it because of the shortages caused by vanity use of it. All of the the sort of TikTok trending and celebrity trending of 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 Ozempic um and Ozempic used at the sort of Wagovi level, but still being called Ozempic by most people because it's just that now, right? Kleenexes tissues. Kleenex, Xerox. yeah. Yeah. So it's Ozempic for, sorry, Eli, Eli Lilly, Novo beat you to the pr- punch with getting everybody to get the name recognition. But um, like the first folks, that, that sort of wave of what made it popular to a lot of people or put it on the radar for people who didn't need it or weren't being talked to by their physicians about it for medical reasons all of most of that was not like I have a health condition I'm trying to it was I'm trying to lose 10 pounds for the red carpet or I want to show off my body on TikTok or whatever it was right and so those shortages that affected people who really did need it for medical reasons are how I first learned about it um and then those people who really do need it for medical reasons and don't want to be caught up in the drama or the vanity or the you know community feedback about using it for weight loss reasons now are also experiencing sometimes a shame cycle around that connection so like there's a bunch of different emotional things but what you talked about about that feeling of he- being reassured by the medical establishment or at least folks positioning themselves as the medical establishment that this is harder than we thought it was. It's not just willpower. It's not just that you're, you know, you won't commit to doing it. It's the actual physiological reasons. That is such a relief for so many people and especially people in larger fat bodies who have experienced the most medical weight stigma. It is such a relief to be told that, that we then sometimes are sitting in that relief and not asking some of the other questions we should be asking about Mm -hmm. whether this is good for us, whether it's good for our culture, you know, what it, like what it all means. And so, yeah, but the emotional impacts are are huge, are huge. And these pharmaceutical companies are really good at recognizing and using that in their in their marketing. I mean, they are some of they are some of the biggest purveyors of the message that we should treat obesity as a disease, not as a moral flaw. And I agree that we shouldn't treat people's body size as a moral flaw, but I don't really think the only reason to do that is by classifying obesity as a disease and then treating it with pharmaceutical interventions. But that is, that's what's behind all of that messaging coming from pharmaceutical companies. They've been very effective. Well, probably Madison probably has things to say too about their effectiveness of, of using, you know, those strategies and mentioned the, you know, using those, those strategies about weight stigma and the, the, sort of taking language from body positivity and fat activism and using that language like there's an obesity organization that sells weight like end weight stigma t-shirts for many people that organization is one of the manufacturers of weight stigma um but they're you know they're loud about using that kind of language and i think there are well-meaning people um you you know using that kind of language but using it in ways where they they don't sort of understand the full ramifications of what it means to connect that with medical diagnosis. Madison Muller with Bloomberg. First, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, you know, the ways that these are being marketed, but also just this shift that we're seeing between weight loss and 
the size of your body based on your willpower. And now the integration of these medicines that say, actually, it's about messages in your brain, hormones, other things out of your control. I mean, we're seeing this change at Weight Watchers, at Noom, at other companies, right? Yeah, it's it's crazy. There is a Weight Watchers advertisement plastered on, you know, a wall right by my apartment that I walk by every single day. And now, you know, part of that advertisement is, oh, and we have GLP-1s, um, which is the type of drug that uh, Ozempic, Wagovi, Manjuro, Zepbound is. And I walk by it every day and I'm like, this is so crazy. I cannot believe it, Madison. Honestly, I mean, the points like the I've been I have in my past, you know, used a Weight Watchers guide to like add points to my life to like see what I can eat. And the fact that they as a company are now on board with this is wild. Not just on board, like the CEO made a public apology for we've maybe been doing this wrong this whole time. Look at how we're going to do it now. They're still selling the way they were doing it, quote unquote, wrong, in addition to selling the drugs, right? But like the CEO made an apology. That's how big that shift is. Right. And it's interesting because I think that like in this conversation about, oh, you know, we have these drugs now that are so effective for weight loss. We've also like sort of lost the importance of nutrition and overall health and like exercise and movement and like those things are just not being talked about anymore it's sort of just like oh well we don't need those things anymore because we have these drugs and they're much more effective but like obviously those are still important pieces of overall health and um at at least it's being lost in the like public conversation and i think in media and um i mean i'm sure dr sure has things to say about this but i know like from the doctors i've spoken to they're still really trying to emphasize this with their patients um but it, what we've seen is sort of, and it's interesting too, because like everyone's calling these weight loss drugs. And I guess to some degree, that's what they are. But, you know, Ozempic and Manjuro, they're diabetes drugs. And uh, Wagovi and Zepbound are obesity drugs. And so it's like this sort of blanket statement. And we're guilty of it too. I mean, we write weight loss drugs. It's just like easier people. That's what people are calling them. It's easier to understand. Um, but it has sort of, I guess, permeated into like this public conversation now of everyone, you know, who wants to lose a little bit of weight should take these drugs. And like, I, I think there, there's this now misconception and misunderstanding of what the drugs are actually for. And I have friends, family members who ask me like, oh, should I be taking one of these drugs? I want to lose five pounds for vacation. Like I'm, you know, a little bit older. I, I had a hard time losing weight. And it's like, that's just not what they're supposed to be used for at all. And unfortunately, social media, Hollywood media, everything is like sort of fueling that misconception. But yeah, Dr. Sure, any thoughts on that? Um, well, you know, I'll, I'll sort of bring it back maybe um, to uh, some of the conversation around the fact that there are both you know, risks and benefits to using any medication. Maybe we can broaden our conversation a little bit uh, to include some of those aspects of it. Um, So, you know, this uh, particular, you know, class of medications um, has uh, side effects. Uh, They're predominantly gastrointestinal and they're mostly related to the action of the medication. So, you know, we talked about the fact that uh, the medicines enhance feelings of fullness. Well, if you think about the extreme of feeling full is feeling nauseated (laughs) or even vomiting. And those are the most common side effects that people experience. 
for for many patients who take the medicine, uh, if they start slow and work up slowly on them, even if they have those symptoms, it does improve um, over time. Um, but there are other side effects, constipation, diarrhea, and there are some serious side effects and risks. Uh, that includes uh, the chance of having uh, inflammation of the pancreas called pancreatitis. And there have been some reports of increased uh, gallbladder uh, disease in folks who are taking the medicines, um, which is a, a known risk of rapid weight loss uh, to begin with. Um, so the side effects are, are, are real. And then, you know, any person can kind of have a reaction that's unpleasant or adverse um, to a medicine, and that has to be taken into account. The other thing about the medicines is that, you know, they're FDA approved to be used together with making, you know, behavior changes toward weight loss. And for uh, the vast majority of folks, that does mean kind of changing their approach to how they're eating. Uh, it could mean restricting certain foods. It could mean restricting um, the amount of food that people are eating. And that also has uh, risks uh, in terms of altering your relationship to food uh, or other um, raising other issues uh, for people. Um, so they work most effectively when you're also making those changes. Uh, and uh, I think there's absolutely still a role for um, not just folks using these medicines or working on their weight um, to make positive nutrition changes. You know, that's really for everyone uh, to do uh, to benefit their health. Um, so there may be other risks or side effects that are, are worthy of talking about, but those are the main ones uh, as people start thinking about the balance of it. Dr. Schur, is it ethical for somebody to prescribe these to somebody who is not a diabetes patient, not a patient who has what is clinically termed obesity and is asking for a weight loss option. I mean, truly, the ways that many average people are seeing these drugs is in celebrities who have decided they needed to drop a few dress sizes. And the fact that there are shortages for patients who need them for diabetes treatment and obstacles for other people who are, you know, under clinical supervision for these things and want the treatment but can't get them. And yet we're seeing so many. I mean, I couldn't believe a friend the other day who acknowledged that she was using this for weight loss for her own wanting to have a smaller gene size. Um, we are seeing this so widespread as a vanity drug. What are the ethical issues around that? Yeah, I, I have two things. Um, you know, as a physician trying to help people with their health, it's, it, it can be very frustrating for me that the emphasis has been, you know, on that aspect of it. Um, and so, uh, you know, the FDA approval uh, does have a BMI criteria, uh, which is for the obesity medications. And so if you're uh, prescribing related to the FDA uh, criteria and people don't meet those qualifications, then you're prescribing off-label or outside. Um, so I know that it's happening. It's not something that I do or would um, propose or support. Um, but you know, nonetheless, this is a medical issue 
within a society that has a lot of issues around weight, which is probably an understatement, maybe the biggest understatement of this conversation so far. Um, and so it has gotten swept up into that. Um, you know, there are other medicines that are used off-label. You know, we know that there are people on college campuses using stimulants uh, in ways, uh, but we still haven't said, you know, maybe we shouldn't make those medicines available for people with ADHD. And we know that there are erectile dysfunction medications that are being used in other ways. And so, you know, it's not the only time this has happened. And, um, and so I feel like, you know, there, there are very important medical benefits to some of the medicines. Uh, and uh, I don't want uh, that conversation to completely just to completely take away some of those benefits and advantages also. That's Dr. Ellen Shore, an obesity medicine doctor and researcher at UW Medicine. I'm also joined by Madison Muller with Bloomberg News and Tigris Osborne with the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. I'm Libby Denkman. We just need to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Soundside here on KUOW. Welcome back to Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman. Today we're talking about the physical and societal effects of weight loss drugs like Wigovi and diabetes drugs Ozempic and Manjaro. I'm talking with a panel of experts, including Dr. Ellen Shore, an obesity medicine specialist and researcher at the University of Washington Medicine. I'm also joined by Madison Muller, a health reporter for Bloomberg News, and Tigris Osborne, the chair of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. Before the break, Dr. Shore was talking about the ethical questions surrounding the use of Ozempic for vanity purposes. Uh, the medication was designed to help people to treat their type 2 diabetes, but it's now widely being prescribed off-label as a weight loss drug. Tigris, what are your thoughts on that? You know, often conversations like this are don't even include fat people. Um, and as far as what I can see of the guests here, I don't. Um, I know sometimes what we see when we're looking at each other in a digital space is not, you know, whole bodies or whatever. But I, I believe that I am the only fat person in this conversation today. Um, and and what we don't think about often when we think about fat people's experience is um, the that if we genuinely care about fat people's health and well-being, we will need to make some of those other social changes to enhance the lives of fat people. Stress is incredibly hard on the heart and the other body systems that affect our health and, and the brain and like and and the stress of living in a body that is stigmatized by your culture and where you are cut off from access from things you need, not just things like medical treatment, but things like the chair that you need at your school or, you know, the um the uniform you need at your job or the, you know, things that um that affect your lives in lots of other more civil rights and accessibility kinds of ways. If we care about fat people's health, we have to care about those things because just taking the drugs or just losing weight is not going to cure fat people of experiencing those things. When we talk about efficacy, and Dr. Shore tells us that, um, you know, it's 10 to 15 percent body weight loss for folks who take these medications and or who take a medication as part of their weight management pr process. Um, if I lose 10 to 15 percent of my body weight, what I'm still going to be is a person who is medically classified as obese 
and who is interacting with the world as a fat person who needs a little bit more space um, and who is judged and who has, you know, has to pay more for things in my size. And like, there's going to be all these economic stress and social stress. And, um, and again, like actual civil rights things that I am still subjected to, even if I take Ozempic and take it, you know, take Wegovi for the rest of my life. And so when we talk about caring for fat people and our health, when we remove the vanity thing and just talk about the health of fat people, if you are not advocating for and working towards some of those other changes, I am less interested in hearing what you have to say about my health because I don't think that you're genuine in using the health argument. We know the health argument is used against us all the time, like coming from as a bad faith argument, as a like, you don't actually care about fat people's health. You just don't like fat people. Um, I don't think anybody here is making the argument in that way, but in the world, people are using health in that way all the time as a a weapon against fat people. And then that's just, a lie. You just don't care about fat people's health if that is what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the pressure that we talked about earlier to take these drugs um, is often not considering that even at their most claimed efficacy, even, you know, I think Novo is saying 20%. um, So a percentage of the people who take it lose that percentage. That still leaves a lot of fat people in our country and in the world. And we still need to think about their healthcare experience. And we need to think about their experiences in all the other ways, too. Madison, there is so much of this that has to do with the messages that we see in advertising, in the media. And a lot of that is about business. For the last 10 years or so, I would say, there was this great advancement in the number of sizes we would see in magazines and the kind of, um, you know, uh, sizing, inclusive sizing that companies would start to adopt. Um, Not everybody, certainly not everybody. And there's a huge uh, problem in that area in terms of access. But um, there was this movement towards uh, seeing other body types in the kind of things people were selling to us, which unfortunately is so much of how our brains are formed, right? Um, and, and how our opinions are formed as a society. Um, is the prevalence of Ozempic going to change how companies approach fat acceptance and inclusivity? I mean, that is the question we have been wondering. And, you know, talking to our retail reporter and even like talking I mean we've been talking a lot about just how different companies are sort of handling this moment and we've seen different reactions from food companies and and retailers and Walmart said that baskets were getting lighter because of weight loss drugs and like it's a little bit too soon to I guess say exactly what these far-reaching effects and long-term effects are going to be of these drugs on our society the other interesting one was um that gas is going to be cheaper for airplanes because they'll be lighter. That was like another thing. So it's just, I mean, it's so soon to say that. And I think what, you know, what we're thinking about too is like, and this is a question I actually was going to ask Tigris is like, are we going, are we starting to go backwards on the progress that we've made on bad acceptance because, and, and that progress has been slow. But we are seeing more states adopt, you know, weight discrimination bans for for workplaces. 
um, things like that, where, you know, there are more inclusive sizes now for some brands. Um, is this sort of like conversation that's happening right now and this, the publicity and everything around these drugs, is it, do you think it's harmful to the progress that we have made in the fat acceptance movement and like the body positivity and sort of inclusivity? And I, you know, that's something I've been wondering about a lot. It definitely makes for an up, a more uphill battle for those of us who are doing the work to advocate for fat people in a weight neutral way. Because, you know, always what comes up when we're doing this work is, well, wouldn't it just be easier for you to lose weight? Or wouldn't it just be easier for them to lose weight? And when the when when the public has a perception that it's easier than it used to be to lose weight, then it's even easier to make that argument. Um, but again, like fat is a natural part of human diversity. And there are going to be fat people no matter how this drug works. And this is not going to be the last drug because as you talked about, there's going to be a race for other companies to make their drug and to make their drug the one that is 18% effective when this one is 15 or whatever, right? So this is not the end of this story for sure. Um, but but as the story continues to play out, yes, it does give people something else to use to argue that. Um, it would be easier if fat people just lost weight. So there are still going to be fat people and we still need to make this a world that is safe and fair for fat people. And, um, and, and we also need to acknowledge that the little bit of, like you said, it's slow growth, right? Like we, we sometimes behave as though like we have two fat celebrities on TV now. And so therefore everything is equal and fair to fat people. And like, there are millions of fat people in the world and two celebrities is not the only thing we need in terms of representation in entertainment or anywhere else in life. So, um, so I think we were, we had a low bar for measuring the progress as a, you know, as a whole culture in the first place and we need to keep working on it. I do think this stuff also though motivates more activism. It motivates more advocates. Um, it, you know, it brings out people like, you know, Dr. Sharon and I might not see these drugs exactly the same way, but this is tremendously different than what most people are experiencing, what, what most people who report to us are experiencing with their physicians. And we want to see more and more physicians who have approaches like Dr. Shores that are more individualized and that are thinking about all of the ramifications in all the ways. So I think it's sort of a it's sort of a both and like it's um it's uh it's going to make things harder in some areas. And it's also going to inspire people in other areas to get more involved in the kind of systemic change that it really is going to take to make a healthier world for everybody. All, you know, all the things that we do that are, that fight anti-fatness actually benefit people in addition to fat people. Like as the fat organization, we do it with a lens on how it's affecting mm -hmm. fat people. Um, but we know that you know, it's what is this, the saying, a, a rising tide lifts all boats or whatever, like mm -hmm. that, you know, it really does make, it reduces body terrorism for everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, and making things accessible makes the world more accessible for not just fat and disabled people, but for everyone else. Um, and so I'm hopeful that there's also a lot of inspiration coming out of this moment, not just, you know, more controversy or more excuse to treat fat, fat people badly. There's so much I wanted to get to. And this hour is almost up. I wanted to talk more about the class element of this, especially with how expensive these drugs are and the fact that 
insurance companies aren't covering them. Um, I wanted to talk about the Oprah effect. Um, all of these things are swirling. We're going to have to keep this conversation going. Um, Dr. Schur, any final thoughts there? I saw you nodding along as uh, Tigris was talking. Yeah, I would just reinforce that, you know, as a physician, I absolutely agree with that. It's a both and uh, exactly what Tigris just said. So I came here wearing my physician hat, but when I was in medical school, I had the woman who was the chair of NAFA come to speak to our medical school class. So I have been working on uh, this concept of fat acceptance in the medical community for a really long time. Um, and I feel that one of the possible effects of these drugs, if we kind of talk about it in a way that's that's positive, is it could be to help shift stigma, at least in that way where, you know, maybe the reason that people haven't been losing weight over time wasn't just because they weren't trying hard enough. Because now we have agents that actually work on this biology and show that it makes a difference. Madison Muller, you're going to continue to cover this and it's going to keep evolving. What questions do you have going forward? Yeah, I think from from a business perspective, at least it's like, what other drug makers are going to get in on this? Um, you know, how are their products going to fare or compare to the ones that are currently on the market? Um, and the insurance question is huge. I mean, that's something that still is sort of slow moving. We see more and more state Medicaid um, plans starting to cover this. So I think we're up to like 16 different states now cover weight loss drugs. Um, Medicare is still refusing to cover this. And we don't see that changing anytime in the near future, at least. And then when it comes to private insurance plans, employer sponsored plans, it's like we're looking at you know, 40-ish percent. Um, and so it's, it's still not very widespread. And so that's going to be a huge thing going forward is, is sort of how insurance coverage changes. And a lot of that actually is dependent on some of the studies that these companies are doing right now to prove that the drugs do more than just help patients lose weight, but also have other health benefits beyond that, like improving heart health, kidney health, liver health, um, knee osteoarthritis, sleep apnea. There's like all of these different studies that they're doing right now. And so that's going to be pretty huge from the business perspective, because uh, the hope there is that will motivate insurance companies to cover the drugs. Alcoholism. Did you mention that as well? Alcoholism, the potential for that um, component. Uh, final thoughts, Tigris, before we go. I know it's it's a lot. We've covered a lot of ground and it's impossible to wrap it up in a bow. Um, but in our last two minutes here, any final thoughts? What I hope your listeners kind of go away from this with is just the the idea that no matter what happens with these drugs, weight loss and health are not the only things about fat people that we need to care about. Um, it's not the whole story of a fat person's life, uh, whether they've lost weight or not, whether they can lose weight or not, how they've lost weight. That's not the whole story of our lives. And it's important for us to be talking about this now while it is. It is a huge news story. It's a huge cultural phenomenon. And we're going to see, you know, and continue to see waves of that around other kinds of methods of weight loss and trending commercial weight loss products. And, you know, your whatever onion soup diet your grandma told you or whatever, like we're going to keep seeing these things over and over again. And also you should not see every fat person, you know, through the lens of these things. That is not 
the story of our whole lives and um, it should not be the story of our whole advocacy for fat people either. Tigris Osborne is the chair of the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance. You also heard from Madison Muller, a health reporter for Bloomberg, and Dr. Ellen Shore, an obesity medicine doctor and researcher at University of Washington Medicine. Thank you to my panel. I think it's been a really great discussion, and I have appreciated all of your expertise. Thank you for having us on the show. Thank Thank you. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. By the way, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org.